Here we go, here we go. Let's play. Here we go, here we go. Betsy, I'm going to forget, so remind me. Fold your hands, close your eyes. Here we go. I'm getting older. I can't, you know, I can't be held responsible. Good morning. It's nice to see you. Dear Father in heaven, who has revealed your love to us in Jesus Christ, your dear Son, grant, we beg you, your Holy Spirit to us, that we love you with our whole heart and our neighbors as ourselves. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, good to see you. There's a zillion things to talk about this morning, and then we should talk about the baby Jesus, too. Uh, let's see, just stuff going on. The bells are back. That was pleasant, right? That was very, very nice. If you peek up there, you can see the pipe organ going in. It's starting to look like something, so that's kind of fun. Um, Oktoberfest is coming. I think, I think one of the things to say to you, uh, in the steak fry, I had two reactions to the steak fry. It was great because I got to see my friends, but we didn't have as many people as we'd had in past years. So, um, then, you know, kind of, so we said, well, we had 60 or 70 people. I didn't go to the women's, but, you know. One of the things, the, the original, there were two original reasons for things like a steak fry Oktoberfest. One was so that you could get to know each other, but the other was to have easy entree for your friends and family, especially for people who were unchurched. So we had about 300 people last year. Lindsay's going to buy food for 350 So we're anticipating that you'll bring friends from the highways and byways. I mean, it couldn't be, it's a very low bar to enter a church, right? Drink beer and, like, eat a brat. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really it's not that threatening for most people. So remember that those things aren't just about you and about me. You know, folk eyes up, focus out. It's to bring your friends. And it's always a very nice night, so it'll, that'll be fabulous. Uh, just an observation, you know. Eight weeks ago, um, we were kind of up in arms because the kids were so noisy. But now the service this morning at 8.30, completely copacetic, right? All the kids are fine. They've adjusted. We had about the same number of kids as we always do, but it's interesting. So parents, good job. Thanks for sitting up front. Thanks for hanging in there with your kids. Except for the, it was the, um, I, hate to, I hate to call them out, but the Eisenhammers, are they here? Yeah. Where, where are they? What? They're dancing in the aisles, the Eisenhammer twins. <laughs> I'm like, I'm looking up, and I got twins dancing in the air. I'm like, well, you know. So wherever they are, God bless you. Thanks for not taking them out. Wherever you, are you here, actually, Eisenhower? Are you here? No, they probably got twin duty. So uh, that was kind of fun to look up and see the girls a little bit. Uh, you know, so that, that was all good. Anyway, so that, that was fun. Uh, sign up and get your picture taken. I guess people are doing a good job with that. Kirby, have we signed up yet? No. But we will. <laughs> Plenty of time. Do it online. See the women downstairs. They're very, very nice. So do that. Uh, there's a big shot, big deal thing for the 500th anniversary of the 95 Thesis at Concordia University in River Forest. It's on the 28th, right? Most important thing is that Martin Luther will be there. Apparently, he's incorrupt, <laughs> for you who know what that means. And... The best thing will be not the Gutenberg Bible, not the fancy pants speakers, not even the brats. The most fun thing is the medieval times people I heard are bringing 100 swords to give to kids. I mean, if you can't poke your brother in the eye on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, what good is it, right? So, but I think you have to sign up by tomorrow. Right, sign up by tomorrow because that'll be fun. Yes. I don't, they don't care about stuff like that. I'm preaching for the service on the 31st. Did I tell you that yet? No. Okay, well, I hardly see you. So, um, 
That's like a week away. That's a long time from now, right? I'm just trying to get to 1 o'clock. So, uh, okay, yeah. That's a, is it a big deal service? Is it a big deal thing? Is it? Really? The Boyers are in charge of this, right? Oh, they're nice people. Plus, they're very talented. Oh, yeah, you should come here the Boyers. They're like, yeah, they're right on top of things, right? All right, good. Good for you. Thank you very much. Okay, if you put money in the basket, we'll um, give it to the alert team to keep up their NASCAR trailer, roll it around. Now, people, people are taking pictures with the trailer. They're taking selfies with our alert trailer in disaster areas. It seems incongruous to me, but <laughs> apparently it's good fun. And people need to keep their spirits up, so uh, that's kind of, that's good, too. All right. Uh, let's see, what else did I forget? Anything else? No, I think that's it. All right. Questions about anything? Catechumenal will start in a couple of weeks, late October, beginning of November. We'll see what happens. So if you have friends or if you're here and you're interested in joining, Saturday mornings we'll buy you breakfast and then we'll see how it goes. We'll um, stare each other in the eye and figure out if it's true love, okay? So it's Saturday mornings. All right. Question about anything? No, you're okay? Life's good? All right, let's see if we can. How did Pastor Bukes do last week? Yeah, he's an interesting, I mean, that's being poured into your kids. That, when I see Nelson and Bukes, I'm so happy. The stuff that they talk about with your kids and get into it, it's just so, it's so, so good, right? Those guys are so good. So yeah, say a prayer for them. It's really great. All right. Um, I spent the last, two days last week at a pastor's conference, which, let me just say, always makes you look more beautiful to me than you know. <laughs> There's no, no need to say more, okay? Uh, just always happy to come home uh, and come home and see it. But, you know, the point is, and we've been talking about, what's interesting is we sort of talked about, you know, a little bit about what we're talking about here, which is, you know, how we're going to live in the world and how people will hear about Jesus and what could possibly make that attractive. But I do say, um, you know, I have to remember, there's been all sorts of responses to the world, um, among Christians. Almost always, uh, there's fear and sometimes anger. You know, why can't people understand? Well, they're saying the same thing about you, right? So part of what we're going to try to do this year is figure out whether or not we can understand the world in which we live and then try to find our way through. It's not going to get better for Christians, probably not for a while. And we may lose our advantage altogether. And I don't mean an advantage of force. I just mean the advantage of Shared virtue or toleration. It's, um, you know, it's getting more and more and more difficult. Uh, however, you can't be, you can't be, and the last week I read a, about a consultant looked some pictures of, there's a chapel underground somewhere in Rome connected to the catacombs that has on its walls images of uh, Christians being martyred, you know. It's kind of freaky to look at. You know, there's guys like their stones dropped on them and they're being skinned alive and they're being boiled in oil and being fed to the lions. And, of course, they were buried in this area. You kind of think back to yourself and you say, you know, that's, that's how it was and people stuck in there. You know, so it's a different... We're, we're going to have to adjust how we think about the world. Not give up, but we have to adjust how we think about the world. But the most important thing for you and for me, I think, is to not live in anger and not live in hate. It's so easy. It's easy to hate people. Um, any, any knucklehead can do that. 
So uh, how are we going to do that? I tried to give you a couple of things. So I gave you some things, and I put some things back there. There's nothing new back there. But I want to try to bundle up where we've been and then suggest uh, where we're going to go. And a couple of, there are big chunks of things that I didn't do in, previous, in a couple of the previous handouts, so I'm going to go back and do them now. The point of all this is that we'll live in a way that will pull people in, that will draw people to Jesus. Um, in any sort of stilted or programmatic way, you know, it's not very interesting and it's inauthentic. People aren't going to go for that. Um, even, you know, the kinds of things that suggest that you kind of be friends to people so that then you can tell them about Jesus later, even that feels a little bit to me as if there's a, an ulterior motive. I would just suggest to you that as you move through life with friends and then with other people, you know, people sense that there's something different about you and at some point want that. So it's, it's, it's just a, it's a, it's a simple thing to do, which basically means you live your life in a disciplined way where you see the world the way Jesus sees it, you speak the way Jesus speaks, you um, love the way Jesus loves, you live the way Jesus lives. And it's interesting because when I go away and then I come back to you, I realize how far down the road you are with that, and that's really a good thing. On the other hand, I often, uh, in my own frustration, you know, grows with the church because I see how much could be done if we could all get on the same page. Then I try to remind myself that I'm uh, not in charge of the whole thing, and so my page is only two square blocks, and my page is with you. And so what we need to do is try to pull that together. So at the center of everything, you know, is the crucified Christ. That's very easy from John's gospel. John is a swirl. It's brilliant. It's on different levels. It has all these allusions to the Old Testament. It plays with inside information. But the reality is it really is very simple. That when Jesus says, and when I'm lifted up, I'll have my glory. So that Jesus thinks it's a glorious thing to be crucified, for example, which is not how we would talk. And that, you know, I sort of hinted to you the notion that um, Jesus taking flesh and blood is not plan B, but plan A. You, know, you could muse about that, whether Jesus would have been incarnate even if Adam wouldn't have fallen. You just kind of think about what kind of affirmation that is, especially at the time when the gap between, especially at the time when the privileged place of human beings is diminishing, right? And so we talked a couple of weeks ago about New Zealand where now humans and animals have the same rights. I don't know what that will mean. So begin to think about these things, that the crucified Christ is at the center of everything, and that is the ultimate act of obedience when Jesus obeys his Father, and obedience is an expression of love. So, you know, being Lutheran, there's so, much to, there's so much sense that, you know, to obey, we hear it in this kind of way. Hey, love and obedience, is there any difference? There's no difference. If you love God, you'll perfectly obey him. And it's not a hardship, it's a good thing. It's the gospel for today. Everything is here for you, just play along, right? I'll do anything for you, says the king. You know, I'll feed you, I'll clothe you, I'll bring you in, I'll keep you warm and safe and dry, all is well. And yet, you know, somehow we see it as God ruining our fun. So 
Um, I just have to say, you know, in your own life, fear is the wrong response because the Lord has bundled you up. And in a few weeks, we're going to hear the last texts from the church here where, you know, lift up your heads, ye mighty gates, right? When, when Jesus says, you know, when the final day comes, you look up and you receive it as a gift. So, you know, death is not such a big deal for you. You had your death in baptism, and your other death is not such a big deal. You've already been through that. So understanding that then, to live as Jesus does. And, you know, it's so clear. We've talked about this forever about in Acts chapter 2. You just read what the Christians did. What did they do? They gathered around the apostles' teaching, so scripture. They said their prayers together. They celebrated the Eucharist. They met together as a community. They were so merciful toward other people and so generous that people around them were shocked that they would actually care for somebody outside their tribe. That's exactly the meaning of Acts 2, that they would care for somebody outside their own people, that they would care for somebody else. I mean, little things like, you know what, the the simplest things you can do, you could just be doubly kind to anybody who doesn't look like you or talk like you. I mean, anybody whose skin is a different color than yours or speaks a different language, if you just are doubly kind to them as you move through life, you know, you make the world a better place, and that's a witness to Christ because you affirm that the image of God is in them as well, that they too are created in the image of God and share the dignity of human beings, right? And, you know, then, as Jesus always says, you know, what's, what's the difference? If you, get, if you get pushed around for doing evil, pff, so what? But if you get pushed around for being good, being good, what does Jesus say? Rejoice, right? So suffered the saints before you, right? You know, rejoice. It's the end of Matthew, the Matthew 5, 11, 12, right in there, the Sermon on the Mount, the end of the Beatitudes. Now... Right, that's just kind of the introduction bit. Right, so now I'm just going to look at the one that says number two on it, stuff that I didn't do in that. If you have it, if you didn't have it, it's fine. We've talked about it. If you have it, fine. If you don't have it. This whole notion of Jesus doing signs. So it, we're going to get to Canaan. It'll say, this is the first of Jesus' signs. Um, what happens with signs is that Jesus points towards something, right? Now, it's this weird thing with Jesus because he's a sign and he's not a sign, right? In some sense, he's always pointing to his heavenly father, Right? He's always pointing forward to the kingdom of God. He's pointing forward to the cross. He's pointing forward to the Eucharist, to baptism, to his resurrection. I mean, here's something for you to puzzle over, that John's gospel doesn't have a baptism and doesn't have, doesn't have a mandate for baptism. It doesn't have a mandate for the Lord's Supper. Or, you know, does it? So, for example, when you read the story of the crucifixion, and you understand as the, that you do that a sacrifice is a technical word for a body is separated from blood. And John points to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when he goes to the cross, his body and his blood are slip, separated by the nails put through him and the spirit of the heart. And out of the, spear, out of, out of the heart, when he's speared in the heart, comes... Yeah, baptism you meant to say, and... Blood. Yes, Eucharist, thank you so much for front-running me. That was very nicely played, right? And so maybe the story is really there, but you just have to be really clever to see it. Or maybe John treats you like you're grown-ups. Or maybe he treats you like you're mature people, and as you move into the world, this is stuff that you just live and breathe and you can kind of see everywhere, right? 
So um, one of the interesting things about a sign, this is like so many things, is that you once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. You know, Jesus forces a decision when people bump into him. I'm not talking about, you know, decide for Christ kind of decision. But I'm talking about this notion of Jesus as a crisis. That's actually the word that that, um, John uses. That when Jesus arrived, Jesus creates a crisis. Now, we normally think of a crisis as, you know, this very difficult thing, and there might even be, you know, a lot of, you know, the way, shouting and waving your arms and all that kind of stuff. But um, to be honest with you, it can just mean a tipping point. So Jesus comes and he shines with holiness and he tabernacles and he baptizes in the Holy Spirit and he talks and he does miracles. And that's all before you get to John 2, right? So John 1, 9 and 14, he, he shines with holiness and he dwells among us. He tabernacles among us, verse 14. And he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. You know, someday you'll get the Spirit, John 1, 33. And he talks, you know, come to me, follow me. And he does miracles, John 2. And that was the first of his signs. So I'm right at number 7 in, in outline number 2. The signs actually demand things, right? And then I suggest to you that you too are a sign. So you move into the um, you move into the world, and how you live creates a crisis for people. So, for example, if you give and expect nothing in return, or if you turn the other cheek, or if you protect the weak, or if you care for the poor, you're living in the image of Jesus. If you say, "I forgive you to those who have wounded you." This is not natural in the world. Now, you see, I'm not saying anything to you that you don't already know, but it's so odd, and it's getting odder. Now, one possibility, there's a couple of different possibilities that can happen now, and Christians are in the midst of, if you kind of read kind of across languages, Christians are in the midst of trying to figure out what to do. On the one hand, you have people who are quite staunch, and at the beginning, uh, you know, they, they look, it looks many ways, take Charlottesville, and, you know, they, they have people who are, you have religious folk who are at the front of, it looks like the 60s and civil rights marches, and they're quite harsh with people who, with Christians, quite harsh with Christians who would choose any other way. So that's one possibility for acting. Another possibility, though, is, um, do you have you any? Do you keep up like for the last kind of for the last six months? The hot thing has been the Benedict Option. Have you read about this? Have you read about this? You know, the shortest way to talk about it is perhaps if you kind of envision the way Orthodox Jews live in in New, in New York or in New York City, where you have these enclaves and they move around in society, but they are their own people, and they do business together and they eat together and they keep kosher together, and they intermarry. And they have um, rules for their community, and they have rules for how they work more broadly. There is a, a strain in Christianity. You'll just have to watch it now. Um, of course, the Amish you know, beat them to it. And, and of course, that it's the Benedict option. It's based on the rule of St. Benedict. It's this monastic notion of you're in the world, but not of the world. You're separate from the world. You know, you... It's the most interesting thing, right? If you've been to a Benedictine monastery ever, you have these big walls, you know, and doors. And yet one of the basic teachings of St. Benedict is whenever you look at the door, whenever you open the door and look someone in the face, you see Christ. 
I've told you my, you know, my famous story about spending, just short, if you haven't heard this, I mean, it's one of the most amazing things. I was going to meet my daughter in Austria. It just happens that the World Cup finals were being held in the town where I was supposed to meet her, right? So there's not a hotel room for 50 miles. And I was intersecting with a choir tour. So what do you do if you're a Lutheran pastor and you don't have a hotel room? What do you do? Yeah, you call the Catholics. So um, <laughs> sorry about that 500 thing. And so I, you know, I, I, went, I went to this Benedictine, I wrote this Benedictine monastery, and a guy wrote back and said, oh, yeah, I'm from New York. It's all going to be fine. I get there. He's on sabbatical. I got a bunch of people who don't speak English, and I'm like, ooh, I'm trying to explain in German that I'm Lutheran and you have a place for me. <laughs> well, they take me. If you've been to Europe, you know, they, you know, everything is small. So when I came in, I was taken into a room about this big, and down the middle there was a walk-in bathroom and a walk-in closet. Already I knew it was, you know. And um, the window opened out onto a courtyard where they were, it was a dress rehearsal for an opera. So I was kind of over the top of this opera. And there was a color television with the World Cup, and they left me food and wine, right? So like when the guy left, I'm like, I'm looking in the, I'm looking in the drawer. Yeah, there's business cards for the bishop. They put me in the bishop's room because he was out of town. Now, see, that's completely Benedictine. Why is that? Because whoever comes to your door is Christ, right? So that should be ringing in your ears and mine as we move through. Just watch how Jesus moves through John's gospel. In some sense, he creates a crisis, but it's not always the crisis that you expect, okay? So Jesus is a sign, and he's not a sign. He's a sign in one sense because he always points to the Heavenly Father and he points to the cross. He's not a sign because he is the tabernacle, because he is the Torah, right? Because he is Yahweh. So he's a sign and not a sign, and you can sort of play around with that, and that's all that I, I meant to say to you. But um, you've kind of learned how to live now. And, of course, yeah, I told you this a thousand times. I'm surprised you're not on to me already. I only have one song, right? And this is it, that we live like Jesus. I mean, Jesus, God loves you so much, he'd rather die than hold your sins against you. And in gratitude for that, we live in the image of God. And it has these, you know, kind of cultural effects, which is, you know, I mean, that's just I'm driving this morning and like, you know, Harvey Weinstein got kicked out of the, can't vote for the Academy Awards anymore. I'm thinking to myself, and Hollywood, this is the whole thing. Hollywood, there's a lawyer talking. Of course, there has to be a lawyer talking about this. He says, oh, the, 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 the Motion Picture Academy will now have consequences for the morals of people because Hollywood has this moral code to uphold. I'm like, Hollywood has a moral code. <laughs> any, any young woman I've talked to in the past two weeks has said to me, I've kind of gently probed about this, has said, you know, basically kind of shrugged and, go, you know, what, why does it take so long? Why does it take so long for people to grow up? Well, the answer is because it's evil, right? Because it's evil. And we like evil. It suits us to take advantage of other people, right? Everything from... You know, State Street put that little... Have you seen the, the, the bronze statue of the girl standing in front of the bull in Wall Street? Have you seen this? Right? Yeah, State Street yesterday paid a $5 million fine because they don't pay women what they pay men. 
yeah, that's weird, right? All the way to, you know, Google constantly, you know, says they pay the same amount, but they won't turn their books over to, because, you know. It's so interesting to watch Facebook now have moral consequences. Zuckerberg goes from being the most loved man 30 days ago to not being the most hated, but he's a little bit on the way. And all these things turn on morality. It's so interesting, as if the world was going to, like you could code your way out of the notion that you wouldn't have to deal with right and wrong. And, you know, my old thing way back from, you know, YouTube is the proof of original sin. Just go watch it. Just watch YouTube. You'll believe in original sin. You watch for half an hour straight through, right? So here's the thing. Be different. Be different, right? And it's not just that you're a good citizen and that's culture, culture, some kind of cultural implications. That, in a sense, is a byproduct. Be different because you're actually the person who's willing, as Jesus says, to turn the other cheek, pray for those who hurt you, do good to those who hate you. That's the crisis that Jesus is provoking. And what will happen naturally, I mean, you don't need a program for evangelism. You don't have to read a book. You don't have to, like, have committees. You know what all you need to do for the church to grow? You walk down the street, and you see as Jesus sees, you say as Jesus says, you love as Jesus loves, you do as Jesus does. Boom. Because that is so otherworldly. Jesus and John, my kingdom is not of this world. That is so otherworldly that people are automatic. But here's the thing. You know, if you have a steak fry and you don't invite anybody else but you, it's not a sin, but it's a missed opportunity. Right? Because it's fun. Right? If you have Oktoberfest here and, you know, it's just us, that would be like, ugh, we lost our focus. We We forgot what we were all on about. Right? One of the bravest things in the world is to cross the threshold of a church. It'd be like you walking into a mosque. You, I suspect, would be horribly uncomfortable, and you know, you get on the wrong side, and you don't, you know, you shake the wrong hand, and you know, there's just a thousand things you can get wrong. You know, people have that sort of sense about you as well. I did a wedding with this wedding I did last weekend. Half the people, probably not churched, maybe more. So interesting, and of all, you know. Just everybody in the world was there. It was a Noah's Ark full of wonderful people, right? (laughs) But it was so interesting to me because, um, see, I mean, what do you do? Like in a wedding, you don't print out the Lord's Prayer because everyone knows the Lord's Prayer, right? Yeah, guess what? Right? Or stand up and sit down. Or make the sign of the cross. Or pick something. I mean, I loved it. It was fabulous. Wonderful people of just like so interesting and bright and they're young and, you know, it's great. But... Um, they all responded to your forgiveness and hope message. Yeah, so I, it was interesting because yeah, you had to think about how you're going to talk to people who don't know anything about Jesus, right? So we, I talked about virtue and hope and forgiveness as a divine gift, right? It was so interesting. After a couple of drinks, people were very interested in talking about that. Right. You know, maybe we should skip the steak fry and just have scotch. <laughs> I think about this, man. You don't, need to, you don't need to read this in a book, do you? We should have figured this out a long time ago. All right, well, anyway. Um, 
So I'm just at number three here. If you turn to the second page of this, I just want to see what you're up. I want you to see what you're up against. I gave you a couple of things. You can go read this if you want. Um, number three, number three. The second page of outline number three. Okay. You know, we live in Wheaton, so we're a little bit weird. But even in Wheaton, uh, you know, it's not it's not what it what it was, right? Even 20 years ago. Um, so Rod. Uh, do you say Dreyer or do you say Dreyer, right? It's, one of you guys, it's Dreyer, right? That's how you pronounce it, even though it's spelled with an E, Dreyer, right? So um, this is an article, The Dechurching of America. There are several. He wrote this book, The Benedict Option. It was, it's staunchly enough written that it's provoked uh, wide commentary across circles. People aren't all happy with it, um, on the right or on the left, or liberal, conservative, however you want to talk about it. But you at least want to keep into the conversation. So... Um, you know, he talks about this friend um, and what Christianity in America means. So just the second line there, Americans are abandoning religion in droves. That's the clear takeaway from two polls, one by Public Research Institute, the other by Pew Research. Those are both big, you know, kind of tanks for taking polls about religious things. Now, since 2012, that's only five years, friends. So in the last five years... The share of Americans who describe themselves as spiritual but not religious has surged from 19% to 27%. So, you know, I don't exactly know. Everybody's different. When people say spiritual, they have a sense from, uh, you know, everything from the wonder of the double rainbow YouTube clip that Pastor Nelson showed, right? You've seen the double rainbow YouTube clip, right? You've seen it. You've got to work harder, man. Get back on your... get back. You know, go look, just Google up double rainbow clip. Okay, that's one kind of spirituality all the way, you know, through to, um, you know, what people believe in, in in magic. I just talked to somebody who had met a nice little Wicca woman, and she was trying, you know. When I did, when I was at Evanston, so I was was the first vicar at Evanston for a long time. So whatever my vicarage year was, 84, that's a long time ago. So they give me all the Missouri Senate kids. And I had a couple of Missouri Senate young women who were, had come to Northwestern were quite interested in what they called white magic, right? And, you know, long conversations about no such thing and da-da-da, right? So, you know, spirituality just means you have some, maybe there's a force bigger than yourself or maybe you have a soul. You kind of have to, when, it's a, when, a, when everybody's on their own, um, it's a free-for-all. But at least people say, so you should take this in one sense, a positive sense, that people still have some sense of, Something beyond them or something inside them that's bigger than they are or some animation. It depends, you know, at least you have a mild point of contact, right? The share of those who call themselves religious and spiritual has declined from 59 to 48%. That's a dramatic change in five years, right? Then you keep going in the next bit. Um, you know, and this is the, this is the problem with this is the problem with folks just saying it's all going to be fine and we're our people and you know blah blah. And just let me pause for a second too. The thing that has really um, unnerved me, and almost you know, I rarely get up and walk out of things, but I'm about ready to. One of the things that's really unnerved me is that how often our own church body speaks about other church bodies do this too, but just my people. I could talk about my people, you know. Um, I always get I often get I often get the sense that they're protecting the institution rather than the soul of people who are lost. 
So much of the conversation turns on, you know, let me just say to you, <laughs> when Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against it, he wasn't talking about the Missouri Senate. I mean, he's going to have a church. You know, if the Missouri Senate plays along, there'll be a Missouri Senate. If not, there won't be, but the church will go on. So we're not trying to protect, uh, we're not trying to protect the institution. We're not even trying to protect Jesus because we don't have to protect him. He's fine. He'll be fine today. Uh, what we're trying to do is protect the notion that following Jesus is a life-giving, light-filled thing. And in fact, it is the only walk home. In saying that, you don't have to hate other people. In fact, you should be inviting people to walk along with you. But they will be attracted to you, not because you boss them, or get afraid of them, or are angry with them, or push them around, or assert your former majority status, or anything else. It's not attractive. I'm not going to get to it, but the one thing I want to do with you next week is, you know, the article, and I've given you tons of copies, Hating People Makes You Dumb. That's the topic for next week, that hating people makes you dumb. It's, that's a fabulous article, and that's getting a ton of play. It was reviewed even in the New York Times last week. That might be, I don't know, I read that in the L.A. Review of Books or someplace. It's, it's making some, you know, but the point is that hating people makes you dumb. We'll do that next week and, you know, get back to a text. But the point of this is, y'all, we have to, we have to see the world in a different way, which doesn't have to do, so even, which doesn't have to do with being nervous or angry. When we started a few weeks ago, your sensitivity was much higher. Now, I will say we've grown used to some things in America and things have maybe calmed down a little bit. And, you know, there haven't been any nuclear tests for a couple of weeks from North Korea. And so, you know, maybe you're feeling just a little bit better about the world. I'd like to think, though, that it's because Jesus has calmed your heart. Right? And maybe you're going to find a different way through. So try not to protect the institution. It's not about the Missouri Senate. It's not even about these two square blocks, although it would be fabulous if these two square blocks could lead rather than follow. And by that, I mean step away from Christians who are angry, Christians who are fearful, Christians who are nervous, Christians who assert, Christians who are mean, Christians who complain all the time, Christians who always find what's wrong in somebody else. We are going to just do what we do, which looks a lot like doing what Jesus does, and we're going to repent of the whole thing (laughs) at the end of the day. But it's not about preserving the building, the institution. It's not about preserving. What it's about is being tugged to the Eucharist. That's what it's about. That's all it's about. Everything else can be drawn out of that, but that's what it's about. That's where we're going. We're going toward the pierce in the heart and out come blood and water. That's where we're going because that's that's where John's going. The only thing that matters is the crucified Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who finds his glory in being lifted up, right? That's it. All right. So when you read this, think about that, right? This poll, right? Christians now comprise, this is the fat paragraph, second to the last. Christians now comprise less than half of the population. Congratulations, you're a minority now. The relative size of white evangelical Protestants, that's not us. Well, we might be white, but we're not evangelical, we're not Protestant. White mainline Protestants, certainly not us. White Catholic populations, that's not us either, is declining rapidly, in free fall, actually. 24% of the country is religiously unaffiliated, right? Which is interesting. 
People maybe didn't admit that so much in the past. Young people, 18 to 29, 38% of them are unchurched. That's a startling number, right? So in 10 or 20 years, that, you know, it's not going to be 25% of the people that are unchurched. It's going to be, you know, 50% of the people that are unchurched. And nearly all the growth in numbers of religiously unaffiliated has taken place since the 1990s, early 1990s. About 8%, right? I'm not a big one for trends because I actually believe in miracles. But, uh, and so, you know, I'm never, I, I do like hard data, but I'm not always, when somebody extrapolates about how it's going to be with the church and how, you know, yeah, whatever. It's not my thing to worry about. My thing to worry about is to go to the Eucharist and live out my baptism when I leave here. That's your thing, too. Here's the thing. This is just about obedience. This is just about discipline. This is just about love. This is about going to church, saying your prayers, tithing a real 10%, giving alms for the poor, living in mercy, and doing that with a smile on your face, knowing that it's all going to be okay because at the end of the day, the baby's just going to bundle it up and make it right. That's all the evangelism, mission, outreach program you need. In fact, it's not even evangelism, mission, or outreach. It's just living in the image of Jesus. And if we could get to that, um, we, the world would be a lot better off. And crying about it or worrying about it or trying to be political about it or asserting something else or being angry or being afraid or blowing people up in a blog or trolling other people, do not waste your time. Right? Number three, look at this. John 3.19. So I give you actually a... And this is the crisis, right? There's the Greek word, crisis, <laughs> Right? And this is the crisis. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Like, that's the only verse you really need to interpret the world. Put the whole thing in Hollywood in the last week into that context. Right? So it's all okay to abuse women and take advantage of people and rape people until the light comes on, and then we all sort of back up and say, oh, if I'd have only known, or I, there must have been some misunderstanding, or can't you have some sympathy, or second chances for everybody? I mean, really? The crisis is there are things that are light and there are darkness. There are things that are good and there are evil. There are things that advance people around you, Christian and non-Christian, and there are things that destroy people around you, Christian and non-Christian. The crisis that Jesus provokes is whether you'll live in light and good toward life or whether you won't. It's a very, it's a very simple and really even a binary choice, right? And people who try to fudge it are just fooling, right? They just have both a lawyer, a good lawyer, and a good PR person someplace. Nothing against lawyer or PR people, right? But... When, when, you, when, when you make your decisions in life by how you'll look or how to cover yourself, it's far beyond unsavory. So here's the thing. Jesus, kind of four lines down, Jesus destroys the middle ground, right? There isn't any middle ground anymore. And your only possibility is to follow Jesus, this is point four, who's life giver and who is light and who works in love. 
So, you know, what are you meant to do? Um, I'm flipping all the way to five, and I've done this with you before, but I just put it in there so you remember. You do what's best. Philippians 1, 9 to 11. It's, it's a great little verse. I pray for you that you'll do what's best. In John's gospel, or in, in Philippians, I'm sorry, um, from St. Paul. I pray that you do what's best. You know how what's, you know what's best? If you love people with a selfless love. If you grow up and become a mature Christian, and the only way that happens is by the constant touch and exposure of Jesus, and that you live in obedience, which means you choose for Jesus and not for yourself. Right? That's what it means. Are you still with me? Yeah, you thought I wasn't going to get done today. That's right, you doubters. I got money down in Vegas on me, so it's all I'm going to make it. I promise you, right? So now I'm at number. I'm at. I'm at. I'm at point. I'm at number four. Go to number seven. I just want to do a couple of things with this, and then we're going to be all caught up. And then we're going to do next week. We're going to do how hating people makes you dumb. You don't want to be dumb. And then we'll launch back into John. But at least you have this baseline understanding of where we're going. This shouldn't be, you know, this should not be difficult to figure out. It's mysterious. It's beyond us. It's connecting the dots. It's prophecy and fulfillment. It's cryptic conversations. But what you're going to find out is Jesus is going to walk through John's gospel, and he's going to meet everybody you meet. He's going to meet people at a wedding, and then he's going to meet this woman at a well who... You know, she goes to that church and he goes to this church. And why do you think your church is better than my church? He's going to meet Nicodemus, who's, you know, successful, smart, businessman, a little bit of an academic, but he wants to play, but he doesn't want to lose his friends and he can't quite. I mean, he's, you're going to meet everybody. You're going to meet Joseph of Arimathea, who buries Jesus with spices enough for a king, right? Jesus, you're going to follow Jesus, and all the people that he meets are going to be all the people that you meet. And by doing that, you're going to see exactly how to live in the world because the world hasn't changed that much, right? Because people are still the same. They still want to be loved. They still want meaning. They still wonder who they are. They wonder where they came from. They wonder what the purpose of their life is. They wonder what it means if they have a soul. They work hard if they have to deny their soul. You just, it just comes in lots of iterations, but you don't have to worry. See, the thing is, is what happens is, you, you know, if you took a class on evangelism or outreach, you'd memorize a lot of stuff. Here's what you do. Love people. It is irresistible in a world where nobody else really loves them. And I don't mean love them to use them or love them to take advantage of them or love them to get something you want. I mean selfless love, or as Jesus said, Give and expect nothing in return. Right? That's the definition. To love is to do good, and to love selflessly is to give and expect nothing in return. Okay? So this great thing, kind of from 7, and then we'll just kind of wrap up and be ready to go. You know, in the beginning was the word, you know, this, this charged word in Greek philosophy, that was the thing. In the beginning was the stuff that held all the stuff together, right? The glue that held the universe together, right? And that word comes to us, and he is on point number nine. He's life and light. So he's zoe and phos, right? This is zoe, like, you know, you, like our dog named Zoe, and phos, like phosphorus, right? Burns, right? 
<laughs> yeah, I could tell you, uh, yeah, I don't have time to tell you that story. But uh, So it's this unimaginable uh, interchange between life and light that has to do with, and here it is, divine illumination. If you think that's orthodox, say your catechism. I believe that I cannot believe, but the Holy Ghost is calling me by the gospel. What's next? Enlightened me, illuminated me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. That's ours too, right? And he comes and he tabernacles among us, right? And we've beheld his glory full of grace and truth. Now, not everybody is going to have it. And, you know, sometimes people are going to kill you for it. I give you a point. You know, John came to be, last thing, John came to be um, martereo, you know, a martyr, a witness. John came to be a witness, to point. He must increase and I must decrease. And there is, in the sense, a very strong legal connotation in that word, that people are sort of given their word and what they're saying is true. So that's what you're meant to do because, and I just work you back to point 11, because you've beheld his glory, right? So these words are great because, like Israel, you see, you touch, you know, a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. How do you know Jesus was there? There was smoke and there was fire. How do you know Jesus is in there? There's smoke and there's fire, right? How do you know Jesus is here? The doorbell rings, right? At the Eucharist, the doorbell rings. Jesus is here. It's a doorbell. That's what it is, right? Why smoke? It marks territory. It's so easy, right? This is what Jesus, this is how Jesus tells us that he's in front of us. So we're just like Israel, and we taste his presence. We see his presence. We touch his presence, and that illuminates us. The touch of that illuminates us, and it beheld is a physical seeing, and glory is a visible manifestation. This is all very earthy stuff. It's senses, not in the sense of emotion, but in, in, the, in the way of taste and see and touch and hear and smell. So when you come to church on Sunday, all of your, emotion, uh, I'm sorry, all of your senses are supposed to be at work. That's how you know Jesus is there, because you smell the incense. It's like Kirby's mom. Kirby's mom has worn the same perfume as long as I've known her, 35 years, right? You know if she's there before you see her. You're like, yeah, Nana's here, right? <laughs> they used to say about the high priest, um, you could, uh, in Israel, they used to say about the high priest, you could smell him before you could see him, right? Yeah, that's why, that's why there's a recipe for incense in Exodus 30 or 32 that you can't use at home. It's only for church. Church has a smell. Jesus has a particular perfume he likes, right? So there you go. Um, and we're, last thing on that line, we're blessed to see that fullness. So there's no, you know, trickeration here. This is just like you look at Jesus, and then you say, I'm in on that, and then you say, um, more please, and then you wander into the world, calm-hearted, right, as light and as love, and the chips fall where they may. Last thing, the joy of having a community is when you suffer for this, everybody else comes to your rescue, so it's not just that you're never alone because the Holy Spirit is with you and Jesus is there and the Heavenly Father has you in his hand and nothing happens outside his hand. It's also when, you know, you really start to suffer as a Christian for Christ that everybody else in the community rallies around you. And there's tons of that in Scripture where Paul talks about sending gifts and bailing me out and bringing me book and how about my cloak because it's not heated here, right, in prison. And I'll meet you there, and somebody pick me up at the boat and meet me, and I'm going to a new place in Rome. I don't know anybody. Could you help out? 
right? We're far enough along in our life together that we should be able to see now how all these different pieces pull in the same direction. They're not complicated, right? They're not beyond us. But the thing that, the thing that it takes mo- most is focus. The thing that it takes most is discipline. The thing it takes most is habit. The thing it takes most is liturgy. The thing it takes most is repetition, rehearsal, a regular telling of the story. So everybody's on the same page and everybody knows where we're going. There's no surprises. And yet when we're surprised by the world, we all know what to do. This should not make you angry. It should not be difficult. It should become habit by the time you get to be, you know, 35 or 45 or 55. It should be the normal life of the church. And you know what? I should only have to say this about once a year now. Because you all should be saying it to each other all the time. And it can't just be me saying it to you. And it's not. God bless you. It's not. I would rather be here than any other church anywhere. But for us to get better, to do better, to do more, to be faithful, to love each other, we all got to be talking to each other like this all the time. And that's the thing that makes the difference. Not reading some book or going to some seminar or trying some program or having a gimmick. Right? Just this normal... Read your scriptures, say your prayers, go to the Eucharist, tithe, give alms, live in mercy, be a good witness, and wake up tomorrow and do it all again. All right? We should pray because the bell and canters are fleeing us. (laughs) Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, thanks. See you next week.